Lord Jesus, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as we are gathered here today, we are gathered to worship you, for you are worthy. And you launched a movement some 2,000 years ago that continues to this day. And I pray that as we open your word today, that you open our hearts and speak to us through your word and through the Holy Spirit, so that we will be equipped to live according to the calling that you give us, that we will be faithful to the gospel, faithful to continue to make more and more disciples of Jesus locally, and that we will partner globally as well. So please guide us, Lord. I pray that as a result of our time this morning, that we will grow in faithfulness to you and grow in our wisdom of how to live and lead for your glory. We lift up this time in your name. Amen. Now, toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he said, I will build my church. And he was launching a movement of men and women who will follow him, and he will help more and more people grow as followers of Jesus as well. And as the early church gained momentum, the Jewish leaders were frequently opposing that new movement. Now, there was one seasoned Jewish leader named Gamaliel that we see written about in Acts chapter 5. And he recommended restraint in how the Jewish leaders were dealing with Christians. Gamaliel said that if this movement is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And Gamaliel was absolutely correct. In fact, the movement that Jesus started is truly unstoppable. As more and more people are growing as followers of Jesus, as the church continues to expand globally, it's truly an unstoppable movement. Now, even though the church as a whole is unstoppable, churches can still face problems. And today we're going to see a time when conflict broke out in the early church. So I invite you to turn to the Bible to Acts chapter 6. And if you're using a Bible from the pew, Acts 6 is on page 1101. Now conflict in church is a big deal. As the saying goes, united we stand and divided we fall. One of the biggest things that can suck energy and life from a church is unresolved conflict. And we're going to see conflict today in how the early church addressed it. So I invite you to follow along as I read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Luke writes, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should go up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will, will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said, was, said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So the context of this passage is that the church was providing food for widows. Last week we saw that the early Christians were giving money to help care for those who were poor, who were struggling, and among the poor were many widows. Now widows back in that culture 
were very vulnerable, especially if, if they did not have family living nearby. And it was common, in fact, back in that culture, for Jewish widows, as they got older, to move to Jerusalem. Because there is a commonly held belief that if you were buried in the Holy Land, that was a very good thing. And so as the church grew, so did the number of widows in the church. And the church was caring for many of these widows, especially those who were poor, by distributing food among those widows on a daily basis. And that was a very good thing to do, but all was not well. There was some complaining going on, some gossip and accusations. And the complaint was that Greek-speaking widows, known as Hellenists, were getting less food than Aramaic-speaking widows, known as Hebrews. Now, at that point, every Christian in Jerusalem had a Jewish background. But not all Jews were the same. There were Hellenistic Jews, and there were Hebrew Jews. Now, the Hebrew Jews were those who grew up in Israel. And their primary native language to speak was Aramaic. Aramaic was closely associated with Hebrew, and these Hebrew Jews were the dominant group in Jerusalem. Now, there was this other group known as Hellenistic Jews. Whereas Hebrew Jews grew up in Israel, Hellenistic Jews grew up outside of Israel. Now, to give you some historical background of how that took place, rewind about 600 years earlier, and the Babylonian Empire conquered Jerusalem. And when that happened, Jews scattered into the surrounding nations. And over time, these Jews could return to Israel, but many had put down roots in those new lands where they lived. And so many continued to live for future generations in those other lands. And for those Jews who grew up outside of Israel, their native language was not Aramaic. It was Greek. Because Greek was the official language of the Roman Empire, which dominated that entire region. And if you're wondering about the word Hellenistic, Hellenistic is another word just for Greek. And over time, some of those Greek-speaking Jews did move back to Jerusalem. You know, there would just be kind of a steady flow over time, Greek-speaking Jews moving back into Jerusalem. And over time, there were many of those widows who were speaking Greek who were also moving the town. And these were many times very faithful Jews. And as they moved to Jerusalem, they continued to attend the synagogue. But the synagogues these Greek-speaking Jews attended were Greek-speaking synagogues. In those synagogues, the scriptures would be read in Greek. And the sermons would be in Greek. And the prayers would be in Greek. And even in their homes, conversation would be, be frequently in Greek. You know, this is quite similar to what we see today among immigrant populations. In the first or second generation of the immigrants, they continue frequently to predominantly use the language and the customs of their native culture. And it's hard for groups like this to change and to integrate. I think of an example, even from the history of our church right here at Frieden's Church. Frieden's was founded in 1854 by German immigrants. They lived in America but they wanted to continue to speak German. And so they founded a church that spoke German, hence Frieden's Church. Frieden's is German for peace. And for three quarters of a century, the ministry here was entirely in German. 
I think of an interesting example. In 1919, there was a vote among the congregation about whether to add an English-speaking worship service. That vote was not to eliminate German worship services. It was to add an additional service in English. Do you know how the congregation voted? They said no. They, they wanted the ministry of the church to continue to be entirely in German. It took another 20 years before Frieden's ministry changed over to English. And this illustrates that change is hard. It is difficult for diverse groups, even if they have similar beliefs, to integrate with one another. And so in the early church, you had two groups. They were both Jewish Christians, but they were distinctive in their language and culture. One was the majority. The other was the minority. We read in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, that a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the Greek-speaking widows were being neglected. This was not a one-time problem. It was chronic. It was ongoing. And the complaint was specifically against the Hebrews. It could have been fueled by outright discrimination against the Hellenists from the Hebrews. Or maybe it was just some sort of unconscious bias or favoritism playing out. Now today when people have an issue in the church, a common response is just to leave the church, go find another church down the street to go to that better suits their tastes. Or has everyone who's exactly the same as they are. Or where they can just avoid having difficult conversations. But back in that culture... They could not do that. There was not another church down the road where they could go to. There was one game in town, one church in town. And so if they were to deal with issues, they had to deal with them directly, which, in fact, is far healthier than people just running away or trying to ignore problems. And so the complaint came to the apostles, who were the main leaders there. And it says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. This means they brought together the whole church and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And I think that the way that the apostles handled this was incredibly wise. First of all, the apostles listened and took the complaint seriously. Bill Gates is a well-known founder and, and longtime CEO of Microsoft. And he wrote this about leadership. He said, you have to be constantly receptive to bad news. And, and then you have to act on it. Sometimes I think my most important job as CEO is to listen for bad news. If you don't act on it, you people will eventually stop bringing bad news to your attention. And that's the beginning of the end. The willingness to hear hard truth is vital, not only for heads of big corporations, but also for anyone who loves the truth. Sometimes the truth sounds like bad news, but it is just what we need. And I will say that that is the way I strive to live and to lead. I mean, it's not easy. I don't do it perfectly. But when someone brings a complaint or a concern to me, I want to take it seriously. For one, I think that there's always something to be learned 
when someone has a problem they want to express or a complaint. Now, this does not mean that every time someone complains, the complaint will be resolved exactly the way the, the person complaining wants it to be resolved. But I do think it's important to take those things seriously, to consider them in the process of discussing the issue will increase the level of understanding on all sides. And it can also lead to valuable action steps. And so we see that the apostles, they listened, they took the complaint seriously, and they saw that it was valid. And so then, the apostles clarified priorities to make sure the solution did not distract from the church's mission. In verse 2, they said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And similarly, down in verse 4, it says, But we apostles will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, temptation among leaders is when they hear a problem, try to devote themselves to fix the problem themselves by putting more and more on their plate to make sure the problem gets fixed well and to make sure that people are happy. Now, to be sure, when there is a problem, it does need to be addressed. But... The apostles were wise in how they addressed it. They knew that if they invest a major amount of time into this issue, especially on an ongoing basis, then the church's focus is going to get distracted away from the main things of focusing on the gospel and making disciples of Jesus. Now, in recent decades, much has been made of servant leadership. And I think this is a good topic to talk about. I believe that the best leaders are those who are ready and willing to serve. I mean, after all, even Jesus said he did not come to be served, but to serve. But at the same time, we have to understand that one person or one group cannot do everything. It's important to understand calling and understand roles. For instance, as senior pastor, if I invest major time every week in the cleaning bathrooms, and vacuuming floors, and taking care of the church's yard. Then I'm going to be distracted. A lot of time is going to be taken away from investing in things like counseling, and leading, and preparing for sermons. One person or one group cannot do everything, and so it's important to clarify roles, while at the same time remaining humble enough to do things that may be quiet or menial tasks that few people will ever see. Humility and a servant-mindedness is important while still being clear in priorities and roles. So the, the apostles clarified what their role is, and then they also proposed a course of action for solving the problem based on delegating and empowering other leaders. They asked the congregation to select seven people to oversee the distribution of food to widows. They established three qualifications. They said that these people had to have good character. They had to be spiritually mature. And they had to have the practical wisdom necessary to make good decisions. I think it's important to notice here, the apostles were not micromanaging. They were not even proposing specific details of how to resolve the problem. Instead, they empowered leaders who would address the problem. Now let's see what happened next in verses 5 and 6. It says, What the apostles said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. 
These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So we see here that the congregation chose seven Hellenistic Jewish Christians to address the problem, and the apostles approved the selection. Now I think it's very interesting to see who was chosen. It was seven, but who was chosen? Because all seven of these people had Greek names. Now recall, the people originally having the problem who were being discriminated against or who were receiving less food were Greek-speaking widows. And the people chosen to help resolve the problem were also Greek speakers. And I view this as a very brave and bridge-building move. It was a brave bridge-building move. Because there are all kinds of church politics here, which could have gotten really, really messy. I mean, just think about it for a minute. All the apostles were Hebrew Jews, as was the majority of the church. Greek speakers could have been treated as second-class Christians, not worthy of leadership. But the apostles and the broader church focused on resolving problems and pursuing unity within the church rather than the dominant group trying to maintain power. And evidently, this was a very fruitful solution because the very next verse, verse 7, says the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the church's mission could have gotten derailed, but instead the problem was handled wisely and the church continued moving forward well. So that's our passage for today. A good question now is what do we apply from this passage? Now on one hand, it's a great example of healthy leadership. And so we could or probably even should pull some leadership principles from this passage. But at the same time, I don't think leadership principles were Luke's main reason for including this in this account of the early church. I think Luke's main goal here is to show how the gospel continued to spread and how the church continued as an unstoppable movement. After all, Luke's conclusion, after he described what happened there, is that he said the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. And so in terms of practical action steps, Christians must strive to keep the gospel the main thing. I mean, the apostles essentially said, hey, we can't let the focus waver away from the gospel and away from making disciples of Jesus. These things are central to what the church is to be doing. I mean, the church should invest in other things, such as caring for people's practical needs. But it's so important that we don't lose sight of the gospel as central to what our calling is. Because other groups and other organizations may have other things they do, but only the church is responsible for pointing people to Jesus through the gospel. And so churches must strive to keep the gospel the main thing rather than getting distracted by other things that divert attention from the gospel. And this means that when there is a problem in the church, the way that we handle conflict and complaints makes a huge difference. I mean, church politics happens. Complaints happen. Issues happen. But contentious issues, if we aren't careful, can become so heated and bitter that the only focus then 
is unwinning the battle. And when this happens in churches, you know what suffers? People suffer. The focus on the gospel suffers. And the church's mission suffers. Not every issue needs to be a top-level priority that is fought to the death. I mean, we don't need to die on the hill of every issue that comes up. Many times we can figure out reasonable solutions if we are humble. You look back at the early church. Amazingly, the church in Acts chapter 6 was able to navigate tricky issues well in a way that cared for people well, that prioritized the gospel and kept the mission moving forward. Now we too will have times when we have to deal with tricky situations. That's just the way it is. In churches at times, that's the way it is just in life in general. Tricky, hard things come up. So let's be praying that we can handle our tricky issues well, just like the church did in Acts chapter 6. Let's pray. Our Father, we need your help. Life is hard. Life is tricky. There are all kinds of issues that pop up, whether in church, whether in family dynamics, whether in workplaces or schools or just in our broader culture that can pull us in so many different directions. And so, Lord, in the midst of these tricky situations, I pray that you will help us to stay focused on the gospel and have your wisdom and your guidance from the Holy Spirit to navigate these tricky situations well in a way that brings glory to you, in a way that continues the movement of the church moving forward, Lord. Lord, you say that unity is so important. United we stand, divided we fall. And so, Lord, I pray that for this church here at Freedens, thank you for your faithfulness in guiding, guiding and, and providing for Freedens for so many years, so many generations longer than any one of us have been alive. Lord, I pray that you'll continue to guide Freedens faithfully and fruitfully into the future. And Lord, I pray these same things for our, our, our church nationwide. Man, the church is struggling right now in many ways nationwide. Jesus, you are continuing to build your church individual churches are oftentimes struggling being pulled in different directions by different political ideas strife Lord I pray that you will keep the focus on the gospel and making the disciples of Jesus in spirit and in truth we thank you Lord that we get to participate in the unstoppable movement of what you're doing through the church that you will and are building your church Lord may we be faithful as individuals and as a church family to do our part wisely through the power of your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.